What's the average lifespan of a reenactment group? Is it five years? 10 years maybe before logistical challenges, changes in personal circumstances, drama, or the dreaded burnout take their toll? Well, on this edition of the Reenactors Corner podcast, we discover what it takes to keep a unit going for almost half a century. Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Reenactors Corner Podcast. This is Chris here again with Ben. How are you doing today, Ben? I'm great, Chris. Great to be back. We are very pleased today to have on uh, our guest, Rudy Lange. Rudy, welcome back to the podcast. Hey, fellas. It's great to be back. So for today's episode, I'm excited to to kind of get into this topic. We are going to be discussing uh, keeping a reenactment group afloat. this is something that really takes more than having just a bunch of people. It's a lot of work between attracting and retaining new members, dealing with difficult personalities, navigating leadership changes, uh, managing factions that develop, and just balancing work-life commitments with hobby fun on a group level. Um, so uh, for people listening to this who aren't familiar with this, I am the leader of a reenactment group um, that Ben is also in. I'm also a member of a Soviet group. And uh, Rudy, you are, you're in the group that you've been in for years, right? Yes, I've been a longstanding member uh, of the Sipta company, uh, Großdeutschland division, uh, for the better of 10 years, which uh, may seem like a long time, but oddly enough, that's only about one fifth of its existence. So um yeah learned learned quite a bit incredible so just think for me thinking about this i think about when we started the my reenactment group sikharung's regiment 195 uh basically we had initially only three people and after we announced our intention to form a new group um we very quickly picked up a bunch of other people uh, members of the reenactment group that I used to be in mostly. There was kind of a unit split that happened. And uh, at our first event, we had eight members present, and it was really cool. It was really fun. Uh, but over the years, we have just had this, you know, turnaround in members where we've got a core of people who are the same, but many times we've had events where we had eight people and maybe I was the only person who was there that was also there at our first event with eight people, which was just uh, six years ago or something like that. And uh, clearly it it wasn't enough just to have the initial nucleus of people that we had. It took more than that. It took uh, finding new members to replace people as they come and go. Um, you know, it's uh, and just trying to manage people. It, I think, it really is a lot of work. I mean, to your credit, Chris, uh, just to jump in here, I feel like it's actually been more than six years. I feel like it's been closer to eight because I joined in uh, fall of twenty fifteen, and the group had been established, I think, since twenty fourteen. So, eight years. Yeah, I don't even know what year it is. <laughs> That's the sad reality. <laughs> yeah, but um, jumping off that. I mean, uh, Rudy, how has it been in your group? I mean, I know you have uh, obviously not been there for 50 years, but uh, I mean, that's just, that's probably, the the group that you're in probably is the longest standing reenactment group in the country. Certainly one of them, if not the very oldest reenactment group, World War II reenactment group in the world, probably. Yeah, that's staggering longevity. I feel like most groups have a lifespan that's, you know, a fraction of that. Yeah, how how has it been possible to uh, have a reenactment group that has lasted for that long? 
Uh, you know, it's it's really multifaceted, and you know, it's kind of the reason we're having this conversation here is to dive into some of it. But uh, there's so many various reasons uh, and different integral parts that kind of keep a unit together and keep it running for for as long as it has. You know, like you mentioned, we're we're inching up toward 50 years here as a as a unit, and uh, it really is unheard of, especially uh, when you think of uh, units that kind of come and go that phase out over the years. So to be, be able to say that you've been around for, for this amount of time, it, it's, it's quite impressive. And I think really at the end of the day, it kind of comes down to the individuals that are in the unit. And I know that's kind of a loaded, loaded topic, but it kind of comes down to the mindset of why you're there and, you know, what it is that you're doing there where you're at the end of the day, you're really there to kind of serve each other, or serve the unit as a whole. And um, hopefully we can talk about that here in a little bit. Let me ask you this, Rudy. Um, How many unit commanders, to your knowledge, has GD had over the years? I know for the longest time Bob Lawrence was running it, right? Um, Is he still active or uh, has he stepped down? Uh, yeah, the, uh, the Bob father, as we like to call him, he's, uh, he's still, still relatively active. Uh, you know, just, he's had, uh, grandchildren and, um, you know, other life, life wow. concerns. Yeah. Him. Yeah. Uh, he's living a fantastic life of retirement and, uh, you know, time and health and everything kind of catches up with us. So he's taken a little bit of a backseat in terms of the activeness that he plays in the unit. Understand. Yeah. Right? Yep. And, you know, it's, it's just kind of the natural progress and, uh, he's always checking in with the guys. As a matter of fact, he usually drops a comment or two on Facebook each and every week, just uh, you know, applauding us and, and keeping track of guys and saying how so and so doing. Uh, you know, what are we thinking about this or what direction are we going with that? And so he he's he's still around. Was he the founder? So there actually were uh, two or three really integral. Uh, individuals who kind of got got the uh, unit up and running, and uh, uh, two of them were the Delusia brothers that you you hear about and see at many different events. They do all sorts of eras, uh, but uh, Bob was Bob was right there in the mix and kind of right behind. But uh, he he was the face of the unit for a real long time. Uh, but there hasn't been that's cool. Yeah, there there hasn't really been many actual leading commanders uh, throughout these these past couple of years. Uh, it just kind of worked out where the 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 right people were put in place at the right times, and they kind of held the reins for for the duration. Uh, currently, Mark Lenzen is uh, is our our Hopman, uh, our active commanding officer, and he's he's doing a great job. But it, it takes a lot of people to to make this thing click. Sure, that's yeah, it totally makes sense. What about um, the size of the unit over time? I mean, uh, I think it's normal for reenactment groups to have a sort of a ebb and flow, mm-hmm. you know, to kind of expand and contract with time. Uh, we have seen that even in. Uh, in my group in the short time that we've been around. Um, what about your group, Rudy? Um, have you guys seen some, some numbers kind of, uh, ebb and flow? Yeah. Yeah. And it's, as you stated, it happens to every unit. It starts off with a handful of guys, you know, way back in the seventies saying, Oh, uh, Hey, you know, we, we should do reenact German, you know, let's get some Swedish conversion tunics or, you know, back then there's originals laying around that they would wear out and it starts with a handful and it starts to grow and grow. And, uh, you know, you have like-minded mm. individuals in this hobby that are interested in military history or, uh, you know, really kind of putting their feet in the shoes of the guys that went before us. And uh, so, you, you know, word starts to spread and a couple interested like-minded individuals get, get together and it starts to grow. And uh, so it started with a handful and uh, if you look at some of the pictures, especially from the gaps of old, uh, you know, Grossdeutschland had the top and the bottom uh, areas of the caserna filled with just our unit. Uh, you know, right now we have... Incredible. Yeah, it's... it's. I can recall going to gaps many years ago and just being like, wow, this is amazing. We have like a whole floor to ourselves and maybe one or two smaller units upstairs, but... I remember being how impressed it was then, but some of the old timers would take out pictures and be like, oh, well, look at the gap in, uh, you know, the late 80s or early 90s. And it was just floor to floor uh, filled with crazy, yeah, just 
I was at a gap once, and Jeannie had an entire barracks and overflow into a second barracks. <laughs> <laughs> and, for, and I think it was, if I remember right, it's 30 people on a mm-hmm. floor. So uh, 60, 60 plus. plus, you know, 75 unit members at the event or something like That's that. Yeah, awesome. which, which is really unheard of. And seeing those pictures is just Im- really impressive. Sure. So I think, I think as of right now, uh, we have about 114 to 117 members on paper. Uh, typically to any given event, we usually get do- 35 to 45 guys to show up, which uh, is by no stretch of the imagination it's it's a good size unit uh turnout yeah no that truly is i feel like it's uh there's always on paper versus how many actually show up to an event always that it, it, it always there's a proportion that significant significantly smaller you know in the unit that i used to be in that i reenacted with a long time we had pretty consistently like 50% attendance at our at our bigger events where uh, we had maybe 60 guys on paper and we would have 30 people in the field. Mm-hmm. That's something that I think um, a lot of people might not really be aware of or take into account when they're starting a unit. I mean, I don't know how many, there is no data on this, so I can just go by what I've seen. But I feel like I've seen a lot of reenactment units start where there's, I see some announcement that a reenactment group has formed. But it seems to me that most don't survive more than two years or even a year in a lot of cases. And I think that might be a little bit of the reason why is because people uh, are like, okay, well, we've got 10 people. That means we're going to have 10 people at the event, but like nobody can go to every event. Yeah. And some people can't go to very many events at all. And so, um, you know, you get this dynamic where, the how big you are on paper really doesn't translate to uh, showing up at events, really. And uh, sort of to just insert my own observation on this too, uh, jumping off of what uh, what you were saying earlier, Rudy, I feel like a lot of reenactment units are the pet project of you know like either one individual or a small collective of individuals um, who just have this passion. And, I mean, I even see it in 195. 195 is very much Chris's baby. Um, sort of just like for the longest time, Bob Lawrence was, uh, you know, headed up GD. And it sounds like you guys have been able to make a transition uh, and now have new leadership, which is really impressive in and of itself. But uh, I feel like a lot of units, there's like one individual who has a vision, and then he's got, you know, friends and supporters who, uh, and uh, it just, that's, that, that's, uh, that is the, that is the most successful units I have seen. A reenactment group is kind of a really weird thing. It's not really a, uh, it's not like a sports team. It's not like a job. It's this sort of volunteer organization that tries to mimic military organization levels, you know, on some small way. Uh, it's, I, I think it's, it's kind of a unique thing. And I've, I've done a lot of different group activities in my life, but none of them really had the same exact sort of dynamic as trying to run a reenactment group, which I just think is can really be so challenging. Honestly. Yeah, I think it is unique, sort of on a sort of a group dynamic level. I mean, part of this, I think, is because of who reenactors are. I mean, let's be honest here. You've got to be eccentric on some level in order to want to dress up like it's World War II and then play make-believe of this horrible uh, historical human event. <laughs> <this> tragic <laughs> thing. That That's the truth. Yeah. And so you you get a bunch of reenactors together and you're going to have different attitudes and you're probably going to have some strong personalities. And to be honest, uh, probably some weird people, too. Right. I mean, you know, not not saying that I'm not weird. Right. <laughs> I mean, there is an awareness here that this is a very bizarre thing to be doing. Yeah, there's different kinds of weird. And I feel like all reenactors are weird, but there's good weird and there's bad weird, you know. <laughs> Rudy, you must have noticed this, too. Um doing the events that you do where, uh, you know, sometimes it can be really, I mean, look, let's be honest here. There can be, there can be drama and there can be, uh, people who have maybe some weird ideas. What's your thought about this? 
Yeah, it's 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 difficult because we all sort of at the end of the day have a like mindset in terms of, yeah, we want to put this stuff on and go out and enjoy the hobby and, uh, you know, have a somewhat common goal. But at the end of the day, everyone has their own mindset, too. And uh, whether it be, oh, well, you know, you should hold your gewehr this way or, well, I read this account that said that, you know, they would have worn their uh, uh, this way. So it's, it's kind of tricky because while 98% of us are lovers of military history and military science, uh, and we want that common goal, it can be tricky because people do come with different mindsets. Uh, and it, it runs the whole gamut. It doesn't just have to be about, you know, how you're wearing a certain item, but how should an event be run? Uh, what should certain individuals do during the event? Uh, what time period do we want to portray? Who's going to be in charge of the authenticity? And uh, so it can be sticky because there's just so many open-ended questions and people have different mindsets. And it's it's about trying to get on the same level and same page of coming to a conclusion that helps that common goal. Mm. I think you're totally right. Um, uh, you know, certainly what you say uh, resonates with me, even just thinking about trying to explain to people sometimes the need uh, to make sometimes arbitrary decisions with regard to what you're going to wear, uh, you know, what time period you're portraying. It's not any more or less correct to portray 1943 versus 1944, but at some point you've got to make, somebody has to make mm-hmm. a determination about this. And then the members of the group have to go along with it, you know, and uh, it's it's tough because you've got new people coming in all the time, which is great. We have to have new people coming in all the time. But when I think back to when I was a new reenactor, I mean, I had all kinds of uh, totally terrible ideas. I did as well. And <laughs> You're not alone. It took a lot of experience, <laughs> you know. It, it took a lot of experience to understand why, you know, I, I mean, I remember... Uh, this is just one example, uh, one shameful example out of many. I was at a meeting of my reenactment group before I had ever gone to an event, and I proudly showed off a uh, World War II German issue, uh, like rabbit skin cap, woolen rabbit skin cap that was in my size. And I said, I could wear this at a winter event. And somebody said, well, you're going to have to check with the unit leadership to determine if it would be okay for you to wear that hat. And I was like, what are you talking about? This is an original hat. Why couldn't I wear it? You know, I just didn't mm-hmm. get it. I didn't really get the the need to have a cohesive unit impression, the need to have rules about what you can and can't wear, or even just that, okay, this was used by German army soldiers in World War II, but like this wouldn't have been used by us. This for wouldn't the, have been yeah, used for the, by For the you. longest time, I did the same thing. I, uh, you know, I wanted to wear items because I knew they were worn by, you know, the Wehrmacht in World War II, but not specifically because they were worn by the unit I was portraying. And uh, so I feel like... I feel like that finally wore off. It took, sure took me long enough. Well, I think it's I think it's tricky too. When you go back to discussing the reenactor's mindset, uh, and I'm in the same boat. I've I learned this when I first started doing World War II German reenacting too. Oh, these you know these splinter uh, Stahlhelm camo covers look really cool. I'm gonna buy one, uh, but then you would buy it and when you're trying to have a large unit impression, you want to be relatively uh, uniformed. So now I have this twenty twenty dollar twenty five uh, helmet cover that just sits there because we would never wear it. Uh, I see a lot of guys, and and I know that this is up for debate, and it kind of is why we're having this discussion to begin with. Uh, a lot of guys get really excited and say, "Man, low boots! You know the schnorshuer, they look so good. I'm gonna, they just like you know they look dapper. I'm gonna go out and buy my low boots. I'm gonna wear them to every single event and." Then it ends up being, well, we have a lot of events where you can't wear low boots or, uh, you know, it it doesn't quite fit the norm for what we're trying to do this weekend. So, you know, low boots are out. Well, then you have guys who just spent $150, $250 on on low boots that, you know, are going to collect dust for a little while. We did a QA and a episode a couple of weeks ago or a month ago, whatever it was. And somebody uh, made a really kind of interesting question where they were asking about, is it possible to have a unit that is uh, sort of run by one guy that's the, the 
brainchild and vision maybe of one person and then have a an orderly sort of transition of power uh, where the torch is then passed to another unit leader. Um, and that's something that I think is a really interesting question because uh, I've seen this happen a few times. I've seen it happen successfully, I guess more than a few times when I think about it. But it it can be a pretty perilous time for a reenactment group, I think, when a guy who has been running the show for a long time decides that it's time for him to step away. Yeah, Rudy, how did, how did it happen? And uh, I know Bob Lawrence, as we talked about, was in charge of GD for the longest time. How did it how did it happen when he decides to sort of hang up the hang, hang up the cape? Uh, you know, it, it might be a, a question that he would be better suited to, to fully answering. But like I said, you know, he'd been doing it for a number, number of years and uh, grandkids were coming along and um, some health things popped up. But, uh, you know, I, I can recall when he said that he was sort of stepping away and man, it just was like, I think the air just came out of everybody's chest because he's really all we've known as a leader for the longest time. Um, but you know, the great thing about, uh, our unit is that we do have a lot of individuals who are like-minded. And so there's, there's always a couple that kind of stand out. And, you know, as a teacher, I can see it in the schools I work with. You you can kind of pick it out as a pretty young age. You, you'll notice the kids that have some leadership qualities or, you know, their hearts are in the right place, or maybe they're well-spoken or they work well with others, or, uh, you know, they don't mind doing the dirty work. But, uh, you know, we were pretty fortunate in the unit to have several individuals like that. So there was a couple of names that got got, got uh, tossed into the ring, so to speak. And, uh, you know, the, the true sign of a, of a, a leader is the one who says, uh, you know, not, not me just because uh, they know that there's a big responsibility. They know that they have big shoes to fill. Uh, they might not seem deserving or worthy of, of you know, such an undertaking or uh, worthy of the responsibility. But nine times out of ten, those ones who say no, like, uh, you know, I, I shouldn't be doing this. Those are the ones who need to be there. They're the ones who should be in that spot. Um, so, you know, like I said, we were fortunate enough to have a couple of, couple of names get tossed into the ring. And uh, Mark Lenzen had been around uh, for a number of years, and he kind of checked off a lot of boxes. And uh, he rose to the occasion and uh, stepped into to Bob's place. And uh, he's been doing an amazing job. I've been lucky enough to sit in on a lot of meetings that he's had in regards to uh, the responsibilities of the year and interacting with other units and planning events and running events. And, uh, it's, it's a lot of work. I give a lot of credit to anyone who, who steps in to fill a unit of any size. Uh, it's, it's definitely a big undertaking. And we've been pretty fortunate to have several members who, um, have been able to create a stab, if you will. Uh, so he's, you know, he's got a good support team. And so we're just plugging away and my hat's off to those guys. I alluded to uh, unit splits earlier. And I remember talking to Bob at one point about unit splits and his standpoint at the time, if I remember right, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but he felt like uh, unit splits were an unavoidable thing that was going to happen. Where if you had a group that was large enough, then there were going to be, you know, whether it was one person who's kind of a rabble rouser who finds other disaffected people, maybe even maliciously, and a bunch of people are like, well, F this, we're going out. Or um, in a different way, I think if if people have a different idea for how a unit could be, and it's not the same as the unit that they're in, but there are other like-minded guys in the group who like their idea better, then maybe they'll go off on their own. And, um, and that's, that's kind of how the group that I am in now started where I was in a group for a long time and it was run by one guy whose name was Paul Mita. He put a tremendous amount of effort into running the group. His house was, uh, basically our clubhouse, our vehicles were stored there. I don't even want to imagine how much money he had spent on like unit level assets, all the loaner gear for the unit really, it belongs to him and was stored at his house. He had loaner rifles. Um, he was, I mean, he was a friend and is someone who is still a friend and someone who I look up to. Um, 
a time came for him where he needed to prioritize other things in his life, and he made a decision to step down as a reenactment group leader. Um, And then there kind of came a sort of a, I don't know, kind of a tumultuous period in my view. Um, Maybe other people who were in the group at that time might remember it differently, but to me, there was some confusion over what direction the group was going to go in. I was able to articulate an idea that I had for what our reenactment group could be, and other people had different competing ideas, but in sort of the the leadership vacuum that formed when the, the original unit commander stepped out, there was, wasn't really anybody to say how things were going to be. There wasn't anybody to make a final decision. And so he, here I am advocating for my ideas that are resonating with some people and that other people are rejecting. Uh, other people are proposing their own ideas, which I was not fond of and what eventually happened, I guess, long story short here, is that a, a new reenactment group started. And I really think that it was actually for the best for both groups because my group is still going strong after eight years. You know, we just had, uh, I think uh, earlier this year, we had an event with more participants than we've ever had before. And the group that we left, uh, I believe, now has more members than they did before we left. So they, you know, having not having uh, some dissatisfied guys who are advocating for a different way of doing things is probably for the best for them too. Um, So I think, you know, splits, they can be, uh, they can be bad. I think they can be good. They could certainly kill a unit, I'm sure. But um, I think that they're kind of inevitable in this sort of thing. Yeah. It's funny just watching different sort of things happen to a group over the years. I mean, the group that I started reenacting with um, back in 2012, um, in 2013, their longtime commander actually passed away of cancer. And there was a tumultuous period after that. And that group actually, to their credit, has, uh, has it still exists. They like went through a, a couple of leadership changes since then. But, you know, they, they still field with a decent number of members. Um, in the local scene, but I left in that kind of tumultuous period following the passing away of the uh, initial uh, or the, the the longtime commander, and uh, basically, I think it's just it's it's interesting the uh, the life cycles of different units. You know, some can survive a tumultuous event like that; some cannot. Yeah, I, I think I've seen. Um units that were really huge that basically don't exist anymore. And I I don't always know exactly what happened, whether it was that um, somebody who was a real uh, mover and shaker, motivating force type of guy uh, in that group maybe like fell away and and the unit kind of went other ways or whether there was a split and the, the unit wasn't left after everybody left or, you know, sometimes it just... But I mean, it's it's certainly I've seen groups that were fielding a hundred guys that, as far as I know, don't really exist anymore. So just because a unit is successful and has a lot of people and a lot of energy and momentum doesn't mean that they're going to last forever. I mean, ultimately, nothing lasts forever. Sure, totally. Yeah, there's there's uh, no guarantee. Um, that's for sure. Talking here about all of this effort that unit leaders have to put in to keep a unit going. I mean, even just, uh, you know, maintaining whatever the unit communication channel is, whether it's moderating a Facebook group or trying to direct people to a forum or an email list or calling people on the phone or texting people or a group chat, having to monitor that, having to read it all the time. I mean, this, you know, that that's a, a small part of it, but that takes takes up a lot of time. And uh, that doesn't even get into the actual what it takes to plan an event or to plan the logistics of an event and make sure that everyone who's going to an event with your crew knows what the expectations are, knows what they have to bring, bring the right thing. And of course, if they don't bring the right thing, um, what do you do then? Um, if someone does something wrong, if someone breaks a rule, what do you do then? And so uh, that takes up, I think, a lot of mental energy. And so obviously there's, there's really nobody for whom 
reenacting is like all that they have. Everybody has a life outside of reenacting. Everybody has a family, uh, you know, and a job or people in their life, whatever it is. And it can, I think, be really hard for a unit leader to... Um, it's very easy for a unit leader to get burned out. I, we did an episode a long time ago talking about reenactor burnout that I think of sometimes. And um, I think someone who's in charge of a group has a lot more uh, of a risk of getting burned out than somebody who doesn't have a leadership role and who is just showing up at the events uh, with his rifle and his gear and being told what to do. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's interesting because... As, the, as a regular member, you know, one might want to be doing the hobby to escape uh, responsibility, you know, like responsibility mm. of a job, a responsibility of a family, etc. There's an escapism element to it. But to actually lead a group, you it that itself is a responsibility. And there are the expectations of members uh, placed upon you, you know, Um and so I feel like to do that, to be able to do that, execute that successfully, and not go crazy, um, it it takes a certain type of person uh, who who just is adept at that, if you will. Yeah, I, I'm going to try not to go off into too many branches here. I have so much going through my mind right now. Uh, within Kostoichland, I am enacting uh, Feldwebel in our unit, and. Uh, I also was the head of the recruiting um, department for a long time. And so you do have contact with so many people. And I, I can recall going to a Stalingrad event where I would just go as a lonely little grenadier and carry around um, boxes of munition for the mg34 and i was just floating on cloud nine just okay where do you want me to go i'll carry these cans this is great not having to you know be act as a zugfuhr try leading three groupas to uh you know a common area and uh so there's a lot to be said uh ben to what you're referring to in terms of just being able to unwind and relax and uh it can be easy to get caught up in that moment uh to because you are trying to relax, but there's so much going on behind the scenes and other people that have stress on their shoulders and on their minds and a lot of responsibility. And um, one thing that I would say is that uh, being a part of a larger unit and then not to downplay what Mark or Bob or any of the other commanding leaders have uh, you know, done for the unit throughout the years is because we do have such a large membership uh, a warehouse with vehicles and um, an original goulash kanona that we need to get food to and get hauled to events and uh, the new recruits coming in who's going to be in charge of the eight or nine new guys who are just showing up to an event um, all these additional individuals that play such a key role in a larger unit that make it function you know you have to have someone who's in charge of the logistics someone who's in charge of uh, taking care of everything that's at the warehouse, uh, maintenance on the three trucks and the half track and the other vehicles in the unit. Uh, so there's there's a lot to go into it, and it really does take a whole team, and that can help alleviate uh, some of the stresses that are placed on leaders. But you know, leaders leaders do bear the brunt of it, and. Uh, I know that some of those individuals that are in charge of those other departments, if you will, uh, can help can help the leader. And I'd be, I'd be interested in talking to you know a leader of a smaller unit, uh, even if the two of you have something to chime in, uh, in regards to what it is that they do, or if there's anything that uh, they they uh, put responsibilities into other members of their smaller unit so that they don't feel burned out or super overly stressed. Chris, well. Uh... You know, sure. Uh, fortunately, we've got a, a core of guys um, who are able to help with uh, different tasks. If I feel like, um, you know, there's a particular event that I want somebody else to coordinate, um, someone else to be in contact with the unit, uh, I'm sorry, with the event organizers, I can certainly do that. There's, there are people who will step up and do that. Um, if I need somebody else to come up with a scenario for an event. If I need somebody else to write uh, uniform and equipment guidelines for, or, or to create a primer for a specific event, then I can ask somebody to do that. And, uh, 
I wouldn't be able to do it all by myself. You know, I have, sometimes I have more free time and sometimes I have less. Sometimes I have more energy and, and, uh, sort of stamina for dealing with reenactment stuff. And sometimes they don't some, sometimes, uh, being in charge of a reenactment event or reenactment group means that you have to deal with people that you really don't even like or want to deal with, you know, and I can kind of, uh, you know, I mean, look, uh, this is kind of the, uh, warts and all view of historical reenactment here. I mean, it's, not every single reenactor that I've ever met has been someone who I would love to have a beer with every week. You know, sometimes people just, uh, personalities clash. That's a thing that can happen. And, uh, you know, I, fortunately I don't have to be always be the point of contact with every person for every single thing. I can sort of, uh, pick and choose a little bit, which, which definitely helps for me. Well said, Chris. I mean, uh, you know, I'm not going to pretend like our group is not without drama either. I mean, there have been interpersonal conflicts that have nothing to do with me that I have to kind of insert myself into to try to manage, uh, you know, act as a mediator or go between. And it can be it can be exhausting. Um, you know, fortunately, that's not like, you know, I mean, most of my experience of being a reenactment unit commander has been totally positive and fun. And I've really enjoyed it tremendously. Uh, but it's not all good times. It can also be annoying times. I, I think you need to kind of embrace that and have the understanding that that's going to happen. Uh, you know, there's no perfect unit out there where everything is just nirvana and rainbows and roses. Uh, you know, there's going to be butting heads. There's going to be different ideas. There's going to be instances where... Uh, it's almost like middle school or high school drama is happening. You know, it's, as you mentioned, you know, two people might have varying views or opinions and kind of clash. And how do you, how do you overcome that? How do you, um, speak with each other, talk it out? You, you hate to say like share your feelings, but sometimes you just got to butt heads a little bit, have some words and then, uh, get over it. I know in the, the 10 years I've been doing this, I've seen, a handful of those uh, occasions happen. And when I first joined, I remember a pretty particular incident where I was like, wow, what have I, what have I got myself into? Like, yikes, these guys are, are really heated. Uh, and the thing is, is the sooner that you recognize that that's going to happen from time to time, and it's all about embracing the fact it's going to happen and then figuring out how to get over it. That's, that really is the key. And, um, I, I know that we've had uh, end of the year kind of not grievance sessions, but more of like a little party or a Weinacht fest where Rupert comes. And you do need to realize that there's there's a lot of stress that's put on people's shoulders who are running these events, attending these events, hauling their gear there, uh, following orders for a whole weekend. And after a year of doing 10, 12, I know, Chris, you said you've had years where you've had all uh you know closer to 20 events in a year uh it, it can be a lot so mm. it's it's equally as important to air all that out have a couple of laughs remember you're there for each other you're there for you know a higher purpose and uh i i just feel like that's equally as important to to have that understanding i agree totally the whole dynamic of orders you know giving and following orders is so weird in reenacting because it's all make-believe and it's like I can give an order to people and uh, basically my hope is is that they're going to follow it because they've agreed to pretend that I'm in charge of something here but the reality is is that we're all just hobbyists uh, out there in a in a forest on a weekend and there is no uh, code of justice for me to enforce anything if someone just decides hey man screw you I'm not doing it yeah, the only thing is, it's just like your friend who might be in charge is like upset that the thing didn't get done, you know, or uh, wasn't he wasn't listened to, you know? Yeah, the you know, but it's just like, right, you're going to like let down your friend. Um, I think that's it, you know, I think that's why, you know, I, I feel like I am motivated to follow orders at events, you know, not wanting to let down a friend or somebody I respect or whatnot, you know. Um, but you really, ha the, this extends to everybody all the time where everybody is basically agreeing to kind of uh, 
play their role to go along with it, even if it isn't what they themselves would necessarily have for their first choice for what to do in any particular moment, you know, or even if they think that it's a stupid idea or whatever, like, um, I mean, we face so many things that uh, are so very different from a real military unit. In a real military unit, if you hate your squad leader, well, that's bad luck for you. In a reenactment group, if you hate your squad leader, you're probably not going to the event. So there's a responsibility there for the squad leader. Yeah, and I I think that... Yeah, true point. Something that really stands out to me, and I I know it's just because we're relatively fortunate to have a goulash Kanona, is that you see these these Noya recruit, these Dietzen that show up to their first event. They're 16, 17, bushy-eyed. They have all their equipment. They're ready to immerse themselves into the Deutsche Wehrmacht and... Uh, then three times a day. Uh, guess what? Uh, Schmidt, Fleischmann, and Gunther, uh, go clean out the goulash Kanona, and you're going to spend 45 minutes scraping out, <laughs> you know, leftover dinner and getting your nice shirt all wet and slaving over dish pans and. You look at the you look at the dejection on their face, like oh what I like I didn't I didn't come here to do this or you got to be kidding me this is the fourth time this weekend I've had to you know be out here in this heat and cleaning up after all you uh, fat Feldwebels, <laughs> but you know they they rarely do it without complaint and I think it just comes down to having that servant servant heart that attitude that. You know, they want to they want to do a good job. And as you were saying, they don't want to let their friends down. They're new. They want to experience the whole thing. And this is a whole part of it. And the cool thing is, is that after doing this for 10 years, I can say like, oh, man, I can remember how many Reading Air shows I was at when I was two years into this and sweating to death in the 89 degree weather and 100 percent humidity cleaning up after, uh, you know, a sausage and noodle lunch. Uh, but, the, but the thing is, is that sticks with you. Every time you put that Feld blues on, you remember like, oh yeah, I've done a lot of not so fun things or endured things that I didn't want to particularly do in that given moment, but that was what I was ordered to do by the Feld Vable and, or the Hop Feld Vable. And, uh, you know, I did it and that's something I'll never forget. So down the road, you can say, yeah, you know, I've, I've done some things that weren't the most fun and now it's time for the next guy to do his share. <laughs> sure. Yeah, I think we've all been there, you know, getting ordered to do guard duty or clean whatever, you know. Yeah. Yeah, or even if you're, you know, the, uh, maybe you partied too much the night before and now you're up at dawn to attack the enemy and <laughs> you would rather be doing literally anything else, but you have to do it. It's what you agreed to yeah, do. Yeah, I, I have an, I have an um, infamous picture of this. I'll have to see if uh, uh, Mike uh, Rhett there can uh, link it to the podcast or something. I, I think it sums it up pretty well. Yeah, just sometimes I've never been in the real military uh, and I know that those guys have their own culture and and world that I will never be a part of but uh, I'm sometimes jealous for leaders in like the real military where the team has to achieve a task and it's just about achieving the task they don't have to worry about making it fun for everybody and they don't have to worry about making it authentic right because it is authentic they're just doing it whereas like in a reenactment setting like when I'm trying to figure out how to do something I I have to take into account okay well I know that these people in this group have different ideas of what is and is not, you know, zony or what is and is not authentic. And I kind of have to try to make this uh, as authentic and make it feel as authentic as possible to the people, almost regardless of whether it's authentic or not. I have to kind of make them feel like they're having a real World War II time uh, and make it as fun as possible and also maybe get a task done at the same time. So it's like it's just sometimes really... uh, a, a very can be a very complex situation and hard to navigate. I think that this kind of plays into an episode we had done earlier, which is talking about your immersiveness when you attend an event. If you have something that needs to get done, whether it just be like chopping wood or uh, something along that lines, it makes it so much more enjoyable for these guys in the unit if you kind of play up a story that comes along with it. Like, we just moved into this position, but... Uh, it's imperative that we end up getting some holts or some wood for the, for this evening. We don't know if we'll be here. Uh, can you two or three guys go and grab it? So if you can kind of play up that part of really pushing yourself into the 40s at the front or what have you, whatever your event may entail, I think it goes a long way. 
Yeah, that sort of theatricality, I think, sells it to a lot of people, mm-hmm. you know? Like, if you if you create some sort of, instead of just issuing an order without any kind of justification or backstory, if you are able to sell it somehow with some, you know, zony dialogue, I think that, that goes a long way to getting, like, to getting somebody who'd be just like, why the hell should I do this? To like, oh yeah, that's that, that sounds pretty cool. <laughs> I had, had uh, made a post on uh, Facebook on the Reenactors Corner Facebook page about this topic and asked uh, listeners for some feedback, things that uh, ideas that they had about it, and we got a couple of lengthy ones. Um, and I'd like to read those. The first one is from Doug Strong, who was a guest on the podcast in the past. Um, he, I think, has some great points. He touches on some stuff that we've sort of already talked about, but I really like his take on it. He said, uh, I firmly believe that units need established leadership teams. I am from a relatively large unit with anywhere between 50 and 100 active members, depending on the time of year. In a group of that size, the leadership cannot be a one-man show. It's important to realize that all of us have cycles to our reenacting activity levels that are influenced by our personal and professional lives. This was the case with our unit leader. Our unit leader had two children in close proximity to one another. There were many years when his focus was on diapers, family, and working to support those things. Needless to say, he had to become less active for a time. With a strong leadership team in place, there were others who could step up and fill in when he was unavailable. This was especially helpful with the day-to-day operations of a unit. A one-man show is fine as long as the leader is able to give his 100% effort to the unit, but it's much easier with the team. My other significant thought about units is that running one is exceedingly challenging. The biggest aspect of the challenge has to do with the fact that we are managing a volunteer organization. No one gets paid to do this, and there's no legitimate positional authority that can be used to simply command people to do things without their consent. In the actual military or even at a workplace, if your officer or boss tells you to do something, you pretty much have to do it because they're in charge. In a volunteer organization, the people have to be willing followers of the leadership that is given to them. Sometimes they won't feel like working as hard as is needed. Sometimes they'll do something different from or not as well as what the leader wanted. However, this is also the magic of a volunteer organization in a positive sense. Because there is no positional authority and people are doing this because they want to, the quality of the work they do is based on their feelings about what they're doing and what internal reward it gives them. This allows them, in many cases, to produce outstanding results, far better results than you could have imagined. If people are working because they want to work and pulling together as a team because they want to do so, the results can be amazing. With that in mind, leaders cannot simply command. Leaders must inspire. Being an inspirational leader means you have to work as hard or harder than the men you are leading. This means sacrifice on your part, and it means you're not always going to be able to just sit around and relax. The people who follow you need to see just how hard you are working. The other element of volunteer leadership has to be gratitude. If you are a leader and you see someone doing awesome work, you need to make sure they know how appreciative you are for what they're doing and acknowledge their excellence. On the flip side, you cannot blast them if they don't do something to your satisfaction. They're under no obligation to do it, and if you yell at them or humiliate them, they will simply leave the unit or stop working to support it. As a leader of a volunteer organization, a positive attitude, recognition of others, praise for the work done are the greatest tools you have for success. That's from Doug Strong. I think that's a really great comment. That's a really good comment. I mean, in particular, I'm just thinking about for the effort that I put into like a like a reenacting pet project versus uh, my day job. Like my day job, it's important to be on a certain level, but it I basically have it to uh, to make money to to stay in my my lifestyle. But uh, there's some days where I just I just want to kind of just do the bare minimum, you know, versus reenacting where it's just like, it is a pet project and, um, I, it is a, it is a true passion of mine versus just something that I'm doing, um, out of a need for, for income. And so I feel like there's definitely a distinction in the amount of effort that I allocate, if you will. Yeah, I think that's kind of connected to what you were talking about, Rudy, with, um, you know, working together as a team and what can be achieved if people are able to kind of put aside 
their own uh, personal whims and instead just embrace uh, sort of a team win concept. Yeah, I, it's, it's oddly enough, someone broached this question to me a couple of weeks back about why our unit had been around so long. And I, I'll keep it short, but basically it comes down to, do you have a servant servant's attitude and servant's heart? Like, are you there because you want to wear a certain thing and do what it is that you want to do? Or are you there to put that sort of stuff aside, do what's best for the common good? And that's not to say like put your feelings aside or your thoughts aside, but uh, it's important to realize that you're there to serve the guy next to you. You're there to serve all the people in your unit, whether it's an eight unit, eight man unit or a hundred and eight man unit. Uh, so I, I think that's really important. To sure. Camaraderie. I also like the point that he made about how leaders have to work as hard or harder than the people that they're, that they're trying to lead. Um, that's definitely something that I have found and have had to keep in mind. Um, I think I might've mentioned before on the podcast, like, uh, one, one attitude I have about this is that, um, when we're finding a place to sleep, uh, I'll evaluate the sleeping cord quarters and immediately take for myself, whatever is the least desirable place to sleep, because I don't feel like I can ask anybody else to sleep in like a worse place than what I assign to myself. Um, you know, that, that's just one example. But for me, that's that attitude. You know, I can never uh, expect people to go on, you know, more missions than I go on. I can never expect people to walk more miles than than I can walk. Or I can't ask people to move any faster than I can move or get up earlier than I get up. That's respectable. Mm-hmm. It's just. Well, I know that um, our speech, our Hopfeld Vable, um, her elf, when we're having Mittagessen or Abendessen or Fushtuk, whatever it may be, he's always the last person to eat. He makes sure that everyone else gets their rears and gear, gets the goulash kanona and, and eats. Um, so, you know, with leadership comes great responsibility. And it's not, sometimes it can be hard, but I think that's what makes a true leader is like, yeah, you might be exhausted. Yeah, you might have just gotten to a vent and all you want to do is hang out and chat with your buds. But there's a lot of stuff that's got to get done prior to that. And yeah, that's what makes a true leader, for sure. Well said. Another comment came from Adam Bednar uh, on the Facebook page. He said, I like to envision a reenactment group as a living, breathing organism. It's constantly changing and evolving based on its composition and surroundings. Just like the hobby itself, there are numerous, sometimes conflicting, priorities to keep a unit functioning. One strategy that has been very effective for our unit is delegation of responsibility. We have a unit commander that charts the overall course of the unit during the reenactment season, but many of the more tactical and logistical responsibilities are divided up amongst a council of peers. The council of peers is composed of a subset of unit members, both veterans and new, that act as a governing body and a check to the unit commander. Any change in authenticity guidelines, membership dues, or unit bylaws must be forwarded by the council and then voted on by unit membership. We have found this to be an effective framework when enacting any changes. We've also established specialized positions that support the unit commander. A recruiting officer is in charge of Zoom interviews with prospective recruits and the coordination of loaner equipment. Our authenticity officer ensures everyone knows our base impression and the correct equipment to purchase. This allows the unit commander to focus his attention on interfacing with other units and maintaining the overall mission of the unit. I'd advise all units to look towards its members to harness their personal interests and get them incorporated with their impressions. Does a new member play an instrument in a band? Encourage them to learn German music on a period-correct instrument to play in camp. Is someone a strong writer? Get them to write letters from home to be featured in mail call. A unit is only as strong as its members. So encouraging their interests creates a more rewarding experience for the entire unit. And finally, be open to working with other units. While some personalities across units may not mesh well, the hobby as a whole can only grow if we work together. We all share a common interest and can achieve more if we set our personal differences aside. Stagnation and carrying on grudges for years has been the death of more than one mm. unit. I think that's a. I think that's a great uh, comment. Yeah, I think. Uh, I mean, especially, I feel like we're fortunate here in New England where we do have a good relationship with the local Soviet group, and I feel like it just. I've said this before on this podcast, but um, 
that kind of cooperation, I feel like, just breeds successful reenacting in a region. Yeah, a lot of our greatest successes have come from from working with other units and not trying to to do everything ourselves. You know, a lot of the best stuff that we have going on in our group could have only been achieved through that kind of cooperative effort. And also utilizing different skill sets of different people that they might have in their tool belt, um, you know, like musicians or, you know, writing or what have you. I find that that can be, I think that's definitely valuable. There can also be, I think, a a danger, you know, um, there where uh, it can, there's always the risk that it might detract in some way from like the cohesiveness of the unit or the core impression, you know, um, it's, it's, I think there's a balance there between encouraging people to absolutely indulge in things that they're passionate about with trying to sort of manage people and keep them on track and keep them working together to, to do what the unit wants to do. Well, I'll say this. I feel like that kind of cycles back to young reenactors sometimes having bad ideas about what reenacting or what a historical reality was. Well, not not even young reenactors, right? But like new reenactors. That's of what all I ages. mean. Yeah, new yeah. reenactors, young to the hobby, if you will. So yeah, I uh, I think that's uh, there's validity in that. What about you, Rudy? Yeah, I you know I can definitely see both sides. I think it was an interesting take in regards to if you find someone who's passionate about something, don't be afraid to stick them in to a certain role as long as they have uh, some guidance and tutelage in it. Uh, I think that far too often there's new people to the unit that get kind of overlooked because they are new or, oh, well, you know, we're we're not going to stick this person in this role just because they're so new, but they might really excel at it and benefit, um, especially in the realm of like technology and stuff. When you talk about keeping a unit together and creating these different platforms, uh, but I do also see the other side. If you're a mechanic in real life, you, we're not just going to throw you into being in charge of all the vehicles and running the logistics stuff and that. Um, I think that's where it can, can kind of turn into a nightmare. Uh, but I think that that listener comment was, was really spot on. It was really well said. Sure. Yeah, I, uh, I love their sort of uh, I, what I would regard as a high level of organization where they have a protocol where they have sort of a council who has to draft a proposal and then it goes to the membership to be voted on. Um, I find this kind of stuff to be very useful and I don't think it would really be possible for a reenactment group to be too organized. Uh, he's hitting on some stuff that we haven't even really gotten into where he's talking about authenticity guidelines, which are subject to change as more information comes out. He's talking about membership dues, which is something that um, can be a real can be a real sort of make or break sometimes for reenactment groups and unit bylaws, which can be so useful, but also controversial or like cause strife. You know, these are all things that need to be taken into account. That definitely checks out in my own experience, you know, like those things that just, it's, there's so much complexity to all of this, uh, just the, the responsibilities and entail it. It's just, it can go so, so, so deep, you know? Sure. I liked his final comment too, about, uh, stagnation and carrying on grudges for years being the death of more than one unit. I've seen both of those things kill units, you know, where reenacting is changing all the time. The world's changing all the time. People are changing all the time and reenactment groups have to change all the time. You, you have to be flexible. You know, you have to be willing to be aware of what's on the horizon and make changes as needed. Um, and definitely carrying on, carrying on grudges, um, can just be so toxic over time. Well, I think you see the benefits of squashing those those grudges is that and you, though the two of you both discussed uh, working well with other units and attending the same events because this unit is going, uh, I know that once you have that cohesive uh, unity with other units, it makes life so much easier. You have no issues delegating certain responsibilities to other units or other unit commanders because you know that they can get the job done. They can be trustworthy, and uh, you know those jobs will get finished, and those units will keep coming back to different events. And it's that's what's going to make the the hobby stronger. I think. Well said, Rudy. I agree. Um, we are about out of time. Rudy, was there any other uh, final comments you wanted to make on this uh, subject before we close this one out? Uh, I I guess first and foremost, I would just like to say to any GD members who are listening to this, I 
my I am always trying to <laughs> to uplift the unit in the history. So if I left anybody out, I wholeheartedly apologize. Uh, second of all, uh, just it's really important to keep others in mind when you're doing this. Not only having that servant heart and that servant attitude, but uh, you never know what's going on behind the scenes. A lot of these leaders have a lot of responsibility on their shoulders, and just just keep that in mind. Uh, always put in a helping hand before you think of yourself. Uh, think of your unit as a whole and uh, just keep that in mind and keep plugging away. It's one of those events that you can't really describe it, you sort of have to be there because it just felt so much like you were actually in Normandy. I think that female reenacting is still sort of in its embryonic stage, but I do think that there is room to grow. A lot of reenactors probably had like some sort of burnout maybe from like years past. It sucks, but it was a pretty good pause for everyone to kind of like regroup and like kind of like a really nice refresh to get back out there. The Reenactors Corner, bringing history to life. Feldwebel Lange, it has been an honor talking to you again as always. Thank you very much for coming on the program. Hey, Rudy, thank you so much, and appreciate your history of GD and uh, your wealth of knowledge that you've brought here. Well, the, the pleasure is always mine. I, I thoroughly enjoy speaking with the two of you, and it's, it's always insightful for myself, and I've, I'm always taking, a, taking away information each time I speak with you and new things I can bring back to our unit, and that, that's what it's all about. I'm sure we'll uh, have an opportunity to talk again some other time soon. Looking forward to as, it. As am I, gentlemen. Okay, so before we sign off here, I just want to take a moment to thank everybody who supports us on Patreon. It really means a lot, and without your support, we wouldn't be able to do the podcast. Um, so, uh, you know, if you if you enjoy the podcast and you want to help out, that's the way to do it. So uh, thank you for those of you who are supporters. Thank you. I will see you in the field. See you in the field. We love hearing what you think about the podcast. So why not let us know by reaching out in all the usual places, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Just search for The Reenactors Corner and you'll find us there. And maybe think about supporting us via Patreon. No matter how big or small, your monthly donations make a huge difference. And as ever, thanks to Mike, a.k.a. Retro Man, for editing the podcast. We hope you enjoyed it and will join us here again at The Reenactors Corner.